Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Helen Blaze's Brewing Company is refurbishing an historic building that was formerly a hardware store, bank, pharmacy, and mortuary. There are huge challenges and huge numbers of challenges converting an old building. The oldest section of this building, if we buy the 1898 date, are 117 years old. We'll discuss publications of the Florida Geological Survey. The goal of the Florida Geological Survey is to specialize and publish information on geoscience research. And they did that in a number of ways, uh, most notably through their annual reports. And we'll hear about archaeology at Fort King from the Seminole War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Helen Blazes Brewing Company is creating a comfortable and inviting place to serve their high-quality craft beer in one of the oldest buildings in Melbourne, Florida. Design elements like the brick facade, the three-dimensional stamped tin ceiling, and a bank vault from another era will remain in place. Owner Don DeFrisco explains that the name Helen Blazes comes from a nearby lake. We were really looking for a name that connected uh, the 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 historical reference of our building, the time period of our building, to the history of Melbourne. And since Lake Helen blazes just west of here is the headwater of the St. John's River, and the St. John's River is actually one of the largest northern flowing rivers in the country, it supplies most of the fresh water, which a lot of people aren't aware of. Most of the fresh water from here to Jacksonville originates from the St. John's River. So we figured, Water is such an important part of the brewing process, fresh water to the area, a historical tie to the older parts of, of Melbourne. Lake Helen Blazes was a perfect reference for our name. No one knows exactly how old the new Helen Blazes Brewing Company building is. Some records say that it was the first building constructed after the old downtown section of Melbourne burned down in 1919. Other documents indicate that the building was constructed more than 20 years before that. Don DeFrisco. We have pieced together a rather good chronological history, mostly from old newspaper articles, believe it or not. The most accurate newspaper article that we found comes from a newspaper in Titusville in February of 1900, I believe it was February 13th of 1900, when it's talking about how Mr. Fee and Mr. Stewart in their building have recently acquired another company, another business, and that they're moving it into their business on, on uh, New Haven and will be open with this new line of business shortly. Additionally, we found other newspaper articles that suggest or have made reference to the fact that Stewart was building this building as early as 1896. So it may have been opened in 1898, but the, the, every bit of objective data going back to 
even information from the Library of Congress suggests that this is a late 1890s building when it actually opened and began operating. The building that is now the Helen Blazes Brewing Company was originally a hardware store, but at various points in time also included a pharmacy, a mortuary, and a variety of other businesses. Andy Pinkerton is general manager of Helen Blazes. In early 1900s, uh, this, this store started as a hardware store, yes, and became farm supply, crockery, um, and undertaking. Um, and what you find is that in early areas like Melbourne, you know, the population was low. It was just starting to develop as a city or as a town at that point. And uh, it was kind of a one-stop shop. So, yes, there was undertaking done in here. There, there, was, a active, there was a functioning bank. Um, they sold furniture, they sold farm supplies. Uh, Charles Stewart um, had a background in pharmacy, so we're finding artifacts that, that imply that there is some type of pharmacy operation going on in here. And you know, again, uh, Charles Stewart was a pioneer of the area and, and he, him and Frank Fee did quite a bit of uh, a variety of activities in this building. More recently, the building served as a TV studio, an antique store, and an establishment called the Christmas Cottage. Don DeFrisco. With regard to undertaking, um, we have found actual receipts, believe it or not, under the floors when we started removing some sections of the flooring that came from the Atlanta Casket Company. And those dates were in the early part of the, 19, of the 1900s, 20th yes, century. We, so we've found uh, signs and um, shipping documentation. So there was definitely mortuary services being offered here, absolutely. Rather than engage in the adaptive reuse of this building that is more than 115 years old, it would have been easier for DeFrisco and his family to just tear the structure down and start from scratch. They chose to save the historic building instead. What we've developed and acquired is an a, a real love. The whole family that works in this really loves this building. The prior owners really loved the building. And as we did our research and our history during the due diligence process that led up to us actually owning the building, and the more we came to learn about the prior owners of the building and Charles Stewart and uh, Mr. Fee and the, all the subsequent owners, we really believe that keeping the historic integrity of the building was more and more important to us and our brand as Helen Blazes Brewing Company. As renovations have been taking place at Helen Blazes, it's been almost like an archaeological dig. Artifacts being uncovered include newspaper ads going back to the 1900s, shipping documents and business receipts, lots of ornate pharmaceutical bottles, and a pre-Civil War one-cent piece. Jack Gibson has a BA in anthropology with a specialization in archaeology from the University of Central Florida. The building we think is at least 110 years old. I suspect it's considerably older than that. The uh, original Main Street was on Front Street closer to the water and uh, that burnt down in 1919 and then they started building the Main Street over here. But I believe this building was here well before then because it's built right next to the train tracks which were first put here in 1893. Uh, this may not have been built immediately right after that but certainly before 1919. The foundation was raised, we think, in the mid-20s, maybe the late 20s. And underneath the current floorboards, after pulling them up, they, they basically just built on top of all their garbage. So we're finding so many artifacts just right on the surface there. Uh, we're not, we don't have to dig for anything. It's just all surface collection. And based on the dating that I've done, it appears that it goes back as far as 1904, as some of our earliest artifacts. We have some news, newspaper clippings from just before that. Our oldest artifact, we have a coin that's from 1848, although... 
you know, a coin can be carried around for a long time. So I doubt that the coin is as young as the building. But regardless, we have some extremely old artifacts, which suggests it's one of the older buildings on the road. Now, moving on, I'll, I'll, I'll show you some of the coolest, some of the cooler artifacts. Uh, we have a Coca-Cola bottle here uh, that is straight-sided, which means that it is earlier than 1916, which is when the the uh, commonplace Coke bottle shape came into being. Before that, Coke bottles were made by independent bottlers and they were generally just clear and straight-sided, not a lot of texture to it, although they did have a standardized logo. This one in particular has marked on it Coco Florida, which doesn't mean it was bottled in cocoa. It, this was probably bottled up north somewhere. However, it was always destined for Coco Florida. As soon as they made this bottle, they knew that's where it was gonna be shipped with the Coca-Cola inside. We have a bottle here that I dated. It's a brown bottle, brown glass bottle, uh, and it has on the bottom one marking, SB and G Company, number two. Uh, and based on my research, I found that this is a beer bottle. It likely held what we called uh, malt extract. Uh, malt extract was a weak lager that was sold as something of a health medicine, like uh, almost like Gatorade is sold nowadays. Uh, I'm not sure how well it worked. I guess it probably hydrated you without the, without the risk of cholera, but um, it was sold. It would have been sold in pharmacies. Uh, this particular bottle is at least 110 years old. Uh, this this company went out of business in 1905, so I know it's at least that old. It's potentially older. This is a camphor bottle. Camphor is we know it best for its active ingredient in uh, vapor rub, Vicks vapor rub. Uh, so that smell is, is you associate with Vicks Vapor Rub, that's camphor. But this camphor was used to take internally uh, for heart conditions, usually. Uh, in this case, it, the dosage is suggested somewhere between 5 and 30 drops, which is not all that helpful in my opinion, but uh, that was a suggestion. Uh, and this was made by the Grover Stewart Drug Company in Jacksonville, Florida. That building still stands in Jacksonville and is actually a historic landmark. So that's a little bit of local Florida history. And a very detailed bottle, too, yes. an interesting shape. Yeah, it has the paper label on it still, which uh, we can't say about a lot of our bottles. Uh, that beer bottle that I mentioned earlier, for instance, uh, does not have a paper label on it, and it probably did originally. The Coca-Cola bottle also would have most likely had a diamond-shaped sticker on it uh, with a little more information, but uh, not all the paper is going to survive in the, in the situation that was below the floorboards. A couple other interesting pieces. We have Win Wintersmith. Uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. It's a brown bottle, small brown bottle uh, with uh, shoulders at 45 degrees. Uh, I looked into this and this would have been a, uh, a snake oil type remedy that they sold to, uh, to cure all ailments. Uh, I found some really interesting advertisements uh, for this exact product and I'm sure it was bunk, but <laughs> they, they probably sold quite a few of them. For most of its lifetime, the building was a hardware store. But in the 20s and 30s, they had rented out different parts of it to, to different businesses. So at one point, there was a bank, there was a furniture store, the hardware store, uh, and a mortuary in here as well. And we happened to come up with uh, two mortuary tools. They look like drainage tubes. Um, I'm not a mortician. I don't know that much about them. But if you Google drainage tubes, it's what these look like. Um, they're, they look like large sewing needles. Uh, with holes in the top where you can drain fluids from uh, from a corpse and put embalming fluids back in. Uh, so that's quite interesting. One last artifact I want to go over. Probably my favorite artifact because it's silly. It's a little bit funny and it's it kind of gives you a, a peek into the, the mind of the times. Is a small tin. It's about the size of a silver dollar. 
um, on it, it says three Mary widows for 50 cents. And then along the bottom has three women's names, Agnes, Mabel, and Becky. Uh, I looked into this and it is actually a prophylactic container. Uh, it would have held three condoms made out of rubber cement. This was pre-latex um, and they are, were advertised to be reusable. I'm not sure how that works, but uh, apparently they were reusable. With a building this old, Andy Pinkerton and Don DeFrisco are obviously facing a variety of issues transforming the space into Helen Blaze's Brewing Company. We are um, bringing the front facade of the building back to uh, what it would have looked like originally with the brick. And you know, uh, this has been covered up by paint. Um, in the 60s, there was a uh, downtown Melbourne was in the process of trying to revitalize this downtown area. And them, along with the Meyer family, put a cementitious block facade on. Well, at any rate, we're, uh, we're uncovering some troubles with uh, uh, stripping the paint off and trying to get it back to what it would have been originally. Overall structure of the building is a wood frame building sitting on uh, pillars, brick pillars. So uh, for the different weight requirements we're going to need in this building, there's quite a bit to do and some challenges as far as uh, reinforcing the flooring and, and allowing for the loads we'll put on it. And, and hopefully a lot of people as well will put in here. So we'll want everybody to be safe. And, you know, uh, it, honestly, uh, it's been every day we come in here, has, there's been discoveries. There are huge challenges and huge numbers of challenges converting an old building. The oldest section of this building, if we buy the 1898 date, are 117 years old. Trying to convert a 117-year-old building to meet today's ADA accessibility codes, today's fire codes, uh, it's a monumental task. So the building needs all new electric from, the, from scratch, all new plumbing from scratch, all new heating, ventilation, and air conditioning right from the bare bones. Uh, as Andy alluded, floor structures are insufficient to support the weight of large fermentation vessels, so we had to cut out some flooring and replace it with concrete. Um, the fire department is making us do a complete new sprinkler system throughout the building. It just goes on and on and on. The, really, the challenge is they've been fun to address, but they've been also a little frustrating at times, but the challenges have been endless. The Helen Blazes Brewing Company is the newest resident in one of the oldest buildings in Melbourne, Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org for the latest information on Florida history and culture, including upcoming events. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we'll be talking about the Florida Geological Survey. What is the FGS? Well, the Florida Geological Survey, or FGS, uh, was actually established back in 1907 by the Florida State Legislature, and it has the distinction as being the oldest state agency currently functioning under its original title uh, and under the original statute, which uh, provided its creation. And the State uh, uh, Geological Survey, really, the origins of the organization date back even earlier to 1852, uh, when the Office of the State Engineer and Geologist was created. It was soon disbanded in 1854. Again, in 1886, uh, the governor created a post for the state geologist, and they had a avocational scientist who uh, sat in that post for a few years. But again, funding dried up. But then in 1907, there was a big push to create a statewide organization that could collect uh, and then publish information about the geology uh, of our state. And this is particularly important uh, at the turn of the century because the uh, some of the mining industries were really starting to uh, develop in the state of Florida. So there was a an agriculture, a commercial uh, purpose sort of behind the creation of the organization originally. So in 1907, the uh, state legislator got together uh, and decided that uh, rather than having these disparate countywide uh, geological uh, organizations, they formed a single uh, comprehensive state organization uh, that was uh, drafted in 1907. Well, we have some early publications here from the FGS. What are we looking at? Well, really, the, the goal of the Florida Geological Survey is to um, uh, specialize and, and publish information on uh, geoscience research. And they did that in a number of ways, uh, most notably through their annual reports. Uh, and what we have here is actually the fourth annual report. It covers the year 1910 and 1912. Uh, it was published in early 1912. And essentially, it gives a, a brief geological history of the state. Also talks quite a bit about the hydrology, the uh, uh, spring formations, uh, sinkholes, things like that throughout the state. But what's interesting in this early survey, and what kind of differs from today, uh, we'll see here on uh, on page 77. There's a large map, and it says here under the caption a sketch map of southern Florida showing the progress in the drainage of the Everglades. Now keep in mind this is decades before the Everglades National Park was even created uh, and at the time uh, most scientists felt that they could drain the entire southern portion of the state um, thus making that part of the state open for agricultural purposes. Uh, there, it took millions of years for the Everglades to develop this uh, very fine and rich uh, muck basically that was uh, underwater so they thought if they could get to that muck uh, they could then use that for agricultural purposes purposes and also develop on it. So uh, this early publication, they're, they're highlighting the advantages of draining the Everglades. And um, as we know, as the science kind of progressed over the course of the next century, uh, we know now that that has, uh, um, has caused really disastrous effects on, on Florida's ecology. Does the FGS still exist today, and, and what is the significance of their work as it relates to the understanding of our history of Florida? Well, as I said before, when they were originally founded in 1907, the goal was to collect and publish information about uh, Florida's geological past. And um, I'm quoting here from a, a past director of FGS, uh, Walt Schmidt, uh, who said that the really the purpose of the organization is to create a, an organization that could be comprehensive enough to publish geological information because the knowledge of Florida's solid earth materials 
it's important for Floridians, whether you've lived here your entire life or just moved here, uh, because quite frankly, we live on that <laughs> on that material. Uh, we grow our food on that material. We derive our uh, drinking water from that material. So a comprehensive and thorough knowledge of that material is vitally important uh, to Florida's future. So in the 21st century, we, we uh, talk quite a bit now about water resources. Uh, how do we share those resources for both agricultural and commercial purposes, uh, but also for you and I, for Floridians who are living day to day. And all of that really goes back to 100 years of comprehensive research published in these uh, special bulletin publications and also in the annual reports that we have archived here at the Florida Historical Society Library, uh, but uh, is a, a great foundation for the ongoing research that the Florida Geological Survey still conducts today. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at archaeology being done at Fort King. And if in your mind's eye, you look at Central Florida, which is a, uh, a perfect place for agriculture and, and cattle raising, and it's the perfect pioneer uh, paradise, literally, in the southeast. And the Seminoles, too, use this area to a great extent. And it's, uh, the issue is about land and, um, and who's going to eventually own it. That was Gary Ellis. He spoke to me about the causes of the Second Seminole War. He's an archaeologist that heads up an organization known as the Gulf Archaeology Research Institute. 
The Research Institute examines locations throughout Florida that are sites for prehistoric activity with an emphasis on coastal populations that examines pioneer settlements, Seminole Wars, and Civil War sites. Here he tells me how Fort King in what is today Marion County got started and the events that brought the Second Seminole War there. Fort King was built in 1827 uh, as the uh, conditions and tensions mounted in Florida on the frontier. Part of that drive was to protect the pioneers then moving into the new Florida territory and the, uh, uh, also to dampen down potentially uh, depredations by the resident uh, Indians, the Seminoles, of, of which there's several different components and groups located throughout the state, and essentially uh, to eventually facilitate the government's program of uh, not so nicely easing the Seminole to uh, the Western territories and relocating them. As events turned out, it was rather critical to the mounting tensions, and I think everyone knows that the uh, Osceola had a bad turn of events at Fort King, which led to uh, his famous attack and, some, and revenge on the Indian agent, Wiley Thompson, in December of 1835. Thereafter, Fort King becomes the seat of the war. Throughout the war, there were multiple forts built. As the attacks take place there and at Micanopy and, and, of course, the Dade Massacre, tensions go beyond a certain uh, threshold and war is uh, game on. Fort King becomes the seat of the, uh, of the war. So it's actively used and garrisoned, and the original fort built in 1827 was burned when it was temporarily abandoned. When it was rebuilt on a slightly different plan, what you have then is in one location at the top of a hill on the east uh, side of Ocala, a well-developed site that has uh, multiple archaeological signatures, within which is the range of behaviors that represents military and some territorial activity and Native American activity before the Second Seminole War, through the Second Seminole War, and thence to its uh, eventual dismantlement in about 1843. Since Gary Ellis was one of the archaeologists involved with the site, he tells me the things he found there and why it was significant. And part of the extensive artifact inventory, you're going to have the everyday material culture of bottle glass and other glassware, ceramics, coinage, uh, nails, which are extremely important to uh, historic archaeology, and accoutrements, pipage, medallions, buttons, and finally shot and uh, materials related to defensive and offensive warfare is, is uh, uh, not very large, just over a couple of acres in its entire extent. But the core area of the site has been investigated several times. I participated in the latter two that defined the nature and extent of the fort and eventually led to its uh, nomination as a National Historic Landmark. So it, it has met the criteria of that level of significance. I interviewed Gary Ellis and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Thank you.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.